Awesome. Awesome. Well, welcome everyone in whichever location you may be worshiping at today. We're so glad that you're here. Hey, have you ever talked to a real estate agent? I'll bet many of you have. I know you have. And if you talk to a real estate agent, especially a seasoned one who's been at it for a while, and you ask that person, what is the number one rule of real estate? You know what the answer is going to be, right? Because if you ask that question, the number one rule of real estate, you're almost always going to get that same classic answer. In fact, we all know it. So let's just say it out loud together, can we? You ask the question, what's the number one rule of real estate? Let's say it together, location, 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 right? And it's repeated three times for emphasis because wise real estate people know, look, the value of a property can vary greatly just depending on that one factor of location. Well, I'm going to dare say there is a rule in marriage as well. No, it's not location. It's communication. Communication. And I would dare say to you, if there's one thing that's going to be like the, the, the relational lubricant, if you will, to help your marriage, your relationships function really well, it would be communication, communication, communication. It is the lifeblood of every healthy marriage. Through many years now of doing ministry, I have talked to Lord knows how many couples through the years who are struggling in one way or another. And no matter what their particular issues were, here's the one thing I found they all had in common. Every one of them. No matter what the issues were, it all came down to we just have trouble talking to one another. We have trouble understanding. what We have trouble communicating. Communication is the key to a healthy marriage. In their book, Love Talk, Drs. Les and Leslie Parrott put it this way, a couple's ability to communicate is the single most important contributor to a stable and satisfying marriage. And I think that that statement is absolutely true. But see, here's where the problem comes in right away. Because communication, while it's key, is a lot more complex than most of us ever realized. When I took my first communications class in college, I was shocked when the professor put up on the screen a series of factors and sequences that looked something like this. I thought it was a lot simpler than this. But as the professor put these up, he said, look, it's first of all what you intend to say. But keep in mind that what you intend to say may not be, usually never is, what you actually say. And then second, it's what you actually say, what actually gets communicated from you. But then there's the third factor of what the other person hears. You see, they're, they're dealing with their own experiences and biases and background and all these filters, possibly even different, a radically different worldview that make them hear what you actually said through all those filters. 
forth what the other person says to themselves about what they heard. There's this dialogue that goes in, goes on in the mind and heart of every one of us whenever we hear anything. Five, what the other person intends to say back to you. Six, what the other person actually says back to you. Seven, what you hear them say. Again, you're dealing with your own filters, biases, worldview, experiences that are going to cloud and color and impact whatever you think you're hearing. And finally, what you say to yourself about what you heard. I was stunned. Before seeing this sequence of factors, I thought communication was simple. You say something, the other person hears it. Done. Communication complete. But that is so naive. Because of our very backgrounds and the way we use words, we may think we're communicating clearly, but we're really missing each other. Perhaps you heard about the woman who went to see a divorce attorney. She wanted to divorce her husband and end her marriage, and she expressed that to the lawyer. And he said to her, well, do you have grounds? She said, yes, about five acres. He shook his head and said, no, I, I mean, uh, do you have a, like a garage? Uh, she said, uh, no, just a carport. <laughs> he said, look, let me ask you this. Uh, does he beat you up? She said, no, I always get up before that lazy bum does. And then the exasperated attorney said, madam, I'm trying to get at why do you want to divorce your husband? She said, it's because it's impossible to communicate with that man. <laughs> Communication is a lot more complex than any of us thought. Now, if you're not already sobered by those factors, let me throw another one in. For years, as I went around with the Billy Graham team and we taught people about sharing their faith more effectively, here's a statistic we used based on hard research. We told people, look, 87% of communication is nonverbal. Nonverbal. And that's consistent with every study I've ever seen, wherever it is. 50 to 90% of communication, the experts say, is nonverbal. For instance, the roll of the eyes. That communicates disdain and respect, even disgust. It can communicate, I don't respect you or what you just said. On the other hand, when you close yourself like this with your body posture, what does that say to someone? I'm close to you. I don't trust you. It may communicate, I don't like you at all. I want you to be at a distance from me. On the other hand, on the other hand, when you open up and smile and have an open posture and maybe warmly touch someone on the hand, it communicates, I care. I'm interested. I want to know what you're saying. I really like you. So, if we're going to have flourishing, successful marriages, it is so important that we learn how to communicate effectively because marriage can really stretch us. Those of you who've been married for a while, would you agree it can push you to limits with your emotions? It can push you to places and bring up emotions that you had forgotten you even had, right? Yeah, I see lots of nods. 
It can really, really stretch us. By the way, that's why we're talking two weeks from today about conflict and how to manage conflict appropriately. And please don't forget, let me mention it again here, next weekend, it's going to get a little steamy in here. Just want you to know, going to be a little hot and steamy in the sanctuary, so I just want all the parents have a heads up so that you can, you know, monitor your children as you would like. Uh, we're going to keep it sane, but it is going to be about sexual intimacy. So you are duly warned. Just want you to know that. I love the plaque that hung in the office of a marriage counselor. And the plaque read, I was looking for the ideal. I married an ordeal. Now I want a new deal. And all of us who've been married a while know that marriage can be tough. There are real conflicts and communication can be challenging. One woman got mad at her husband because he was staying out all night. And she decided that she would dress up like Satan and scare him when he got home. And so sure enough, she did. She put on the devil suit. You know, the stereotypical suit, red suit, the tail, the horns, the pitchfork, the whole nine yards. She dressed up in the devil suit, hid in the closet. And when her husband came in the door, she yelled at him. He yelled back and said, you don't scare me. I married your sister. Now, surely there's a better way than that to work through our problems. So today, I want us to look at a passage in Ephesians chapter 4, which I believe is like a mini manual on communication. It's like, honestly, a mini manual. It is God's very word. And I want us to look at five principles or ingredients that come straight out of this passage that I believe are critical if we're going to increasingly develop these healthy patterns of communication. I want to linger a little longer on the first one, but then we're going to move a little bit more quickly through the other four. The first one, if we're going to communicate well and build good patterns to understand each other and trust one another, we must practice truth-telling. Practice truth-telling. Ephesians 4 Verse 25, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we're all members of one body. Now, as I said last week, this series applies to everyone, whatever your marital status. And Paul is saying here, look, speak truthfully to your neighbor. Your spouse is obviously your closest neighbor. Neighbor doesn't mean they're just someone who lives next door to you in another house. It can be anyone around you, family, non-family, anyone with whom you're in close contact. We're to practice truth-telling. I'll never forget a formative conversation Debbie and I had early, I mean in the early days of our marriage. She chose to get really vulnerable and just share something that was on her heart. And she said, I want to tell you, as we're getting started on this journey together, she said, uh, I can handle disappointments and imperfections in you because Lord knows I, I certainly have enough of my own. And I can, I can deal with your own struggle with sin and, and weaknesses because that's just a part of life. But the one thing, Debbie said, 
early in our marriage, she said, I cannot handle if you lie to me. He said, she said, you, you, you've got to tell me the truth, even if you think it will be hard for me to hear. I'll never forget that conversation. And by God's grace, truth-telling has been our MO through all these years now. We believe that healthy communication has to start and be built solidly, solidly upon honesty. If there's not a foundation of honesty that leads to trust, then true authenticity is, is just not going to be present. It's just not going to be there. I read a study this week that was done just over 100 miles from here. It was done at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And respected psychologist Robert S. Feldman, in his research there on campus, found that 60% of people lie at least once during a 10-minute conversation. 60%. He was shocked by that. He said, and I quote, people tell a considerable number of lies in everyday conversation. It was a very surprising result. We didn't expect lying to be such a common part of daily life. Who do you think lied more, men or women? Any idea? <laughs> the research actually spoke to that. It's not that men or women lied more, but they did lie about different things. Here's what Dr. Feldman found. Women are more likely, he said, to lie to make the person they're talking to feel good, while men lied most often to make themselves look better. And here's something that really interested me. Shockingly, they found that the most popular students on campus were the most likely ones to lie. You say, well, why would people lie so much? I believe it's all about image management and the fear of rejection. That's what we see in relationships. And that's why fulfilling this command for the apostle is so difficult. Practicing truth-telling is hard because we're afraid that if we really tell the truth and let people see us as we truly are, they're going to reject us. So to be popular, we exaggerate and distort the truth. And if we're not careful, in our marriages, in our most intimate relationships, it can become a game of charades. We need to tell the truth, but it needs to be spoken in love. I like Proverbs 27, verse 7. It says, wounds from a friend can be trusted. Isn't that great? Wounds from a friend, someone who's really in the boat with you, who loves you, who cares about you, a true friend, can be trusted. In other words, we all need someone to tell us the truth, even when it makes us feel uncomfortable. Have you ever been out eating with someone and maybe the food they were eating was a bit messy and they got food on their face? Has this ever happened to you? And they don't know they've got food on their face, but this big old piece of food, it's just obvious and it makes them look really goofy and they're oblivious. They're just going right on talking. There's food on their face. We've all been there, haven't we? What do you do when the person you're eating with gets food on their face? Do you tell them? Or not tell them. Do you go right on? Because it's awkward to bring it up, right? 
but it's also awkward just to let it go. I just want to declare before God and everyone that I want to eat with people who will tell me when I got food on my face, all right? I want that kind of honesty from the people that I'm eating with and the people around me. And here's my point. Sometimes as we communicate, we get food on our face. In other words, we discover that the words we intended didn't have the meaning that we wanted them to have. For instance, it happened to me last week. Last week, I shared my real-life experience about growing up and picking cotton. You remember, I shared that as an illustration of how it kind of set the bar at a certain place for me in terms of expectations. And even though that was my personal experience and I shared it just like you would share a, an experience growing up, and it's part of my story and what really happened to me, I shared it and went right on talking about picking cotton, you know, without any acknowledgement that for so many of the black and brown brothers and sisters in our church, a historical reference to picking cotton for them and their experience, that brings up a lot of pain and consequence, okay? It means something totally different for so many black and brown brothers and sisters. And I appreciate the feedback I got this week from a couple of sisters who helped me understand the gravity of that oversight. So today, I want you to know from my heart that I did not mean to compare my experience picking cotton to the experience of enslaved Africans or to suggest in any way that my experience is like the standard of hardship. Hear me. There is no comparison at all. And for any of you and all of you that that reference may have caused some pain, I sincerely apologize. But isn't it great to have people who tell you when you got food on your face? Now, let me ask you, do you have friends like that? Or do they just let you go right on? And if you're married, let me ask you this. Is your spouse that kind of friend? who will speak the truth to you in love. And if you don't have people like that in your life, listen, I would suggest that you lead the way because authenticity is contagious. And brothers and sisters, let's make sure that the church, of all places in this world, the church ought to be a place where there's authenticity, where we're not playing games, we're being real. We don't mind being told, hey, you got some food on your face right here. Just want you to know, I often have food on my face too. So we're all just in this together. We're all struggling. All of us fail. All of us need a genuine friend like that. For that to happen, it requires a foundation of truth-telling and honesty. Do you have that in your marriage? and in your close relationships. But there's a second ingredient here to healthy communication that we need to touch on. It's in the next two verses. It is deal with conflict promptly if possible. Promptly if possible. Let me read the next two verses. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Now listen, all authentic relationships have some level 
of conflict. And since we're going to spend a full message on this two weeks from today, I'm just going to touch on it briefly today. But please know there will be disagreements. There will be frustrations in all healthy marriages. But Paul says something very interesting here. He says, in your anger, did you get this? Do not sin. Important point we need to understand. Many Christians I've talked to through the years erroneously believe that anger itself is sinful. Anger is not sin in and of itself. Anger is just a natural response. If you're not angry at injustice, there's something really wrong with you. There, there's lots of things in life that should bring up anger in us. Listen, listen. It's not the anger. Paul says be angry, but what? Do not sin. The anger is not a sin. You need to be aware of why you tend to get angry. That may tell you something very important about yourself, but it's what you do with that emotion that makes it sinful or not. I googled how many quills a common American porcupine has. It's shocking. 30,000. Did you know that? Google it. I challenge you. Just put it in. 30,000 quills. How do you get that many quills on that little body of a porcupine? I have no idea, but it's true. And as a result, they tend to live pretty solitary lives. I've seen a lot of porcupines while out hiking in the woods. I see them pretty, pretty often, actually. I've seen several through the years. You know what? I've never seen two porcupines together. Ever. They don't run in packs, folks. They're prickly animals. They don't get along well with other creatures. And here's something I know about porcupines. It's important. When they encounter conflict with another person or animal or something, they have one of two responses. They either attack or withdraw. They either attack or withdraw. And too many people I know in relationships do the same thing. They've only got two gears. That's it. You, they're either attacking or they're withdrawing. Trust me, you can't build a healthy marriage that way. And so what we're going to learn two weeks from now is how to have a healthy strategy for dealing with the inevitable conflict that comes into all of our relationships. That is so important to learn, but I'll just leave it there for today. Third ingredient to healthy communication is to put others first. To put this a little differently, you show me a true narcissist and I'll show you someone who's always going to be frustrated with communication because they can't get the focus off of them. Whatever they encounter, it's always them first and sometimes them only. We've got to be willing to see beyond our own needs, our own desires, and put the other person first. Verse 28 reads, he who has been stealing must steal no longer. You put away the bad behavior, but must work. You start some positive behavior, doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. 
The people to whom Paul was writing had a me-first mentality. They would come together as a church in their relationships, and it was me, me, me. And that sort of mentality is so, so easy to let it creep in. Don't be that kind of a friend. Please don't be that kind of a spouse. Have you ever had a friend that no matter what you were doing, it was all about what they wanted to do? You want to watch a movie, but it's always, you always end up watching the movie they want to watch. You want to go eat somewhere, but it's always the place that they want to eat. You want to play a game. Oh, it's the game that they're really good at, the game that they want to play. Paul says, look, when you approach a relationship, whether it's marriage, whether it's just a friendship with someone, what would happen if we actually got our eyes off of ourselves and put the needs of others first? I think it would be revolutionary. We've got a word for that, and it's called sacrifice. Don't tell me you love someone if you're not willing to sacrifice for them. G. Wade Rowett, PhD, profound insight into the human psyche and soul, was one of my seminary professors, author of many books, one of the best known counselors in the whole Kentucky Anna area around Louisville. I'll never forget something he said in a class one day of pastoral counseling. It's one of those phrases, you know, you occasionally hear a phrase and it just like sticks. It's like an arrow that goes in and you just never, ever, ever forget it. He said, I have counseled literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of couples through the years. And he said, I believe I could boil down the problem when couples are really, really struggling and can't seem to get unstuck. I can boil it down to one word. He said, one or both of the marriage partners, one or both of the spouses is flat out selfish. Whoa. Flat out selfish. I'll never forget that. And through the years, as I've talked to so many people, I've wondered, I wonder how much of the heart of the problem, the foundation here, would be solved if there was just a little dose of unselfishness, of thinking about the other person's needs first. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. But there's a fourth ingredient to healthy communication, and that is be a positive and helpful conversationalist conversationalist. Now, we know there's a lot more to communication, as we've already seen, than just words or just conversation. But there's a specific challenge here from the Apostle Paul, where he says in verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk, he's talking here about words, come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. I'll tell you, this would be one of my top 20 verses for married couples to memorize. This verse right here will change your communication patterns if you really hide it in your heart, memorize it, think about it regularly, and use it as a guideline. 
Proverbs 18 says, the tongue has the power of life and death. Now, here's one of the greatest ironies to me about marriage. We talked about last week how opposites attract, right? That is really true. That's not just some fable or myth. Opposites do tend to attract. We see these traits. We think, boy, I could use more of that. And so we're drawn to that. But here's the irony, one of the great ironies of the universe. Once we find someone who is pretty different from us, you know what we do when we get married to them? We spend the rest of our natural born life trying to change them and make them exactly like us. That's what we do in marriage. Now, here's what I've observed. Usually, married partners are almost never the same verbally. Usually, not always. So if this shoe doesn't fit, then don't wear it. But every survey I've ever seen done, every study says that usually, usually, not always, usually the wife is the most verbal. Usually. I've talked to dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of couples through the years about marital challenges. I don't ever recall a man saying to me, I just wish my wife would open up and talk to me. That's, I'm, I'm, in my experience, this is my experience, that's never happened. I've had dozens of wives say about their husbands, why doesn't he just open up and talk to me about what's going on inside of him? So the wife is usually the most verbal. And most marriages could be greatly helped if the nonverbal spouse, whoever he or she is, learned how to communicate a bit better with words. And one of the resources we gave you uh, in last week's bulletin, Dr. Jared Pingleton reports on a study conducted in a nursery which shows that girl babies exhibited, exhibited more lip movement than male babies. Even at even tiny, tiny little infants, just toddlers, girl babies have more lip movement in terms of trying to express. And then he reported on a study done at Harvard University, which wired a playground for sound, just trying to keep up with little kids and what was happening. They discovered that 100% of vocalizations from little girls were recognizable words, 100% in this particular study but only 63% of the boys' sounds were actually words. <laughs> Much of their vocalization was utterances like, zoom, huh, mm, ah, And ladies, I want to tell you, we just get taller. <laughs> you need to understand this. Not much changes as we grow up. In their amazing book, Men Are Like Waffles, Women Are Like Spaghetti, Bill and Pam Farrell conclude, when a man starts a conversation, it is generally because he perceives there's some sort of problem that needs to be addressed. If there is no perceived problem, he feels no particular need to talk. This is on page 28 of their book. His wife, on the other hand, has a constant desire to talk with her husband. She wants to connect him to everything in her life and assumes he wants to connect to her everything in his life. When she begins a conversation, she assumes she's bringing up a problem. Excuse me. She begins a conversation. He assumes that she's bringing up a problem that needs to be resolved. 
generally she's starting the conversation because it seems natural to talk about whatever is on her mind. While she is in conversational mode, he turns on the fix-it mechanism. Yeah, going to fix it. And the conflict begins. Ooh, this is good. She gets her feelings hurt because he's trying to figure her out rather than just visit with her, be together. He gets impatient because there seems to be no point. What started out as a hopeful moment for drawing closer together becomes another nagging defeat. So question, how is your relationship, your friendship, your marriage doing in the communication realm? What would happen? Here's my question. What would happen if you began to practice Ephesians 4.29? And you ask two questions in all of your interactions verbally with each other. Remember what Paul said. Do not let any unwholesome talk come, but only what's helpful for building others up. That's one question. Is this helpful? It's going to build up. And the second one was that it may benefit those who listen. Here's the two questions. Will this build up my partner and will it benefit him or her? You know what I think we'd find? Some of us would have nothing to say. I don't mean that to be mean. I mean that to be realistic. Honestly, we'd have to really take stock of our communication. We'd find that we're so accustomed to just being so negative and sarcastic and so much verbal trivia that literally we would have to relearn how to talk if we applied those two guidelines to our verbal communication, does it build up the other person and does it benefit the one who listens? And finally here, notice Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Paul says, look, be aware, when you're complaining, when you're critical, when you're tearing down, when it's unwholesome talk, you're not just tearing down others around you horizontally, you are actually grieving the one inside of you, God the Holy Spirit. This is also a vertical thing. You're literally grieving the one who dwells in you and who is there to change you from the inside out. It grieves the Holy Spirit. So the final critical ingredient today to healthy communication is be kind and compassionate. Does that characterize your communication patterns? Remember, just like in real estate, there's one big guiding rule. It's not location. It's communication. Would you say that yours is kind and compassionate? Paul says in verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. There's the exact words. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Now, as I close today, I want to point out what to me is one of the most astounding realities of relationships with families, with married partners, with close friends that I have ever observed. This is such an ironic reality. Have you noticed this to be true? We can be as sweet as pecan pie to total strangers. 
people maybe we've never met, may never see again. We can be so cordial, so warm, so courteous, so loving and kind and compassionate. And then we can turn right around and we can be so cold and mean-spirited to the people that we claim to love the most. What's going on with that? But that is almost a universal reality. And when I've asked about that, people say, well, I know they're going to accept me no matter what I do or say. That may be true, but I hope you're not using that as one of the rules to guide your relationship. I hope that if you're starting to hear some verbal feedback like, you know, we don't communicate anymore. You know, we haven't had a meaningful conversation in weeks. You know, I feel like we're growing apart. You know, I'm sensing temptation in my life that I've never sensed before. Please don't ignore those warning signs. Get some help for your marriage. Talk to your campus pastor. Talk to your small group leader. Talk to a ministry leader in your church, in your congregation, and say, who could possibly be a mentoring couple for us? Where could you point us? What group could we go to? How could we get a little help so we could start actually learning and practicing the patterns of healthy communication? A couple's ability to communicate is the single most important contributor to a stable and satisfying marriage. And here's the good news as we close. It can be learned. It can be learned. Of all the areas I've observed, this one is least dependent upon our family of origin. It's least connected in terms of where we can go with it to what our culture was growing up. And no matter how bad the patterns were that we saw, we can change those patterns and we can learn to be healthy communicators by the power of God. Father, thank you for this great journey we're on all about marriage. Thank you that when we do marriage the way you've designed it, it can be a bit of a taste of heaven on earth. But we know that's not easy. We know that comes at the end of a lot of diligence and hard work. So help us today in our marriages and our relationships to practice the principles you've given us in your word. And we commit all of our marriages and relationships to you. We commit them to you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.